You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. Connection with our sermon this morning, which will be from the book of John, we'll read from the Old Testament the prophecy of Hosea, chapter 2. Say of your brothers, my people, and of your sisters, my loved one. Rebuke your mother. Rebuke her, for she is not my wife, and I am not her husband. Let her remove the adulterous look from her face and the unfaithfulness from between her breasts. Otherwise, I will strip her naked and make her as bare as the, on the day she was born. I will make her like a desert, turn her into a parched land, and slay her with thirst. I will not show my love to her children, because they are the children of adultery. Their mother has been unfaithful and conceived them in disgrace, She said, I will go after my lovers who give me my food and my water, my wool and my linen, my oil and my drink. Therefore, I will block her path with thorn bushes. I will wall her in so she cannot find her way. She will chase after her lovers but not catch them. She will look for them but not find them. Then she will say, I will go back to my husband as at first, for then I was better off than now. She has not acknowledged that I was the one who gave her the grain, the new wine, and the oil, who lavished on her the silver and gold, which they used for bail. Therefore, I will take away my grain when it ripens, and my new wine when it is ready. I will take back my wool and my linen intended to cover her nakedness. So now I will expose her lewdness before the eyes of her lovers. No one will will take her out of my hands." I will stop all her celebrations, her yearly festivals, her new moons, her Sabbath days, all her appointed feasts. I will ruin her vines and her fig trees, which she said were her pay from her lovers. I will make them a thicket, and wild animals will devour them. I will punish her for the days she burned incense to the bales. She decked herself with rings and jewelry, and went after her lovers. But me, she forgot, declares the Lord. Therefore, I am now going to allure her. I will lead her into the desert and speak tenderly to her. There I will give her back her vineyards. And I will make the valley of Achor a door of hope. There she will sing as in the days of her youth, as in the days she came up out of Egypt. In that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband. You will no longer call me my master. I will remove the names of the Baals from her lips No longer will their names be invoked. In that day I will make a covenant for them with the birds of the field and the beasts of the air and the creatures that move along the ground. Bow and sword and battle I will abolish from the land so that all may lie down in safety. I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you in righteousness and justice, in love and compassion. I will betroth you in faithfulness and you will acknowledge the Lord. In that day I will respond, declares the Lord. I will respond to the skies, and they will respond to the earth, and the earth will respond to the grain, the new wine, and the oil, and they will respond to Jezreel. I will plant her for myself in the land. I will show my love to the one I called, not my loved one. I will say to those called, not my people, you are my people. And they will say, you are my God. Our text this morning is John chapter 3, 
the verses 22 through 36. After this, Jesus and his disciples went out into the Judean countryside, where he spent some time with them and baptized. Now John also was baptizing at Anon near Salim, because there was plenty of water, and the people were constantly coming to be baptized. This was before John was put in prison. An argument developed between some of John's disciples and a certain Jew over the matter of ceremonial washing. They came to John and said to him, Rabbi, that man who was with you on the other side of the Jordan, the one you testified about, well, he's baptizing and everyone is going to him. To this John replied, A man can receive only what is given him from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said, I am not the Christ, but am sent ahead of him. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine, and it is now complete. He must become greater. I must become less. The one who comes from above is above all. The one who comes from the earth belongs to the earth and speaks as one from the earth. The one who comes from heaven is above all. He testifies to what he has seen and heard, but no one accepts his testimony. The man who has accepted it has certified that God is truthful. For the one whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for God gives the Spirit without limit. The Father loves the Son and has placed everything in his hands. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on him. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, as we come to our text this morning in John chapter 3, and you look a little bit at how it's divided, really those first four verses from 22 to 26 serve as an introduction to the message that comes in the words of John, in beginning in verse 27. Now in those verses 22 through 26, we find out that, that Jesus and his disciples are baptizing in the Judean countryside, and it's somewhere in the same vicinity that John is also baptizing. And as John's disciples are with John baptizing, it seems that a certain zealous Jew someone who was concerned or had questions about what they were doing, comes to, to his disciples and, and asks what they're, what's going on. They're, they have this argument about the matter of ceremonial washing. We don't really know any more than that. But it seems that this pricked the minds of John's disciples, this conversation about ceremonial washing. Perhaps the other Jew brought up what Jesus and his disciples were doing, and maybe he wanted to compare it with with what John the Baptist was doing. Regardless, it pricked their minds to think of what Jesus was doing, along with his disciples, also in the the Judean wilderness. And we find out at the beginning of chapter 4 that, in fact, it was Jesus' disciples who were baptizing, and not Jesus himself. So his disciples, John's disciples, come to John and they ask him a question. And I think if you read between the lines here, and especially with the way that John replies, there's some jealousy in this question. 
Even though people have been constantly coming to John and and getting baptized, and John's name is known throughout Israel, and his teachings are being received, now people are starting to go to Jesus. And so these disciples of of John the Baptist, they've, they've come to love their leader, they've come to love his teachings and what he's doing. He's doing a good thing for the people of Israel, calling them to repentance. And now they're concerned about the future of John the Baptist, their spiritual mentor and and guide. John, your popularity is waning. Don't you need to do something about this? Their reaction is understandable, isn't it? We all gravitate toward charismatic, strong leaders and teachers. Especially, I can imagine, a leader and teacher like John the Baptist, whose message is true, it rings true, it's it's what the people of Israel needed to hear, repent, for the kingdom of God is near. Everyone is looking for leadership. Everyone is looking for, for help, for, for guidance, for wisdom. And the disciples of John, they found it in John, that fiery desert preacher. And they were concerned now that the star of his ministry was fading. His time was coming to an end. There's a new guy coming. What are we going to do about this situation? But John is a prophet of God, and he knows better. He knows that this is exactly the moment that he's been waiting for. This is the moment that his whole ministry has been focused upon. The coming of Jesus is what it's all about for John. That's what he was born for. That was his whole purpose in the world, to prepare the way for the Messiah, Jesus Christ. John teaches us how and why to put Jesus first. We don't need more of John the Baptist or any other servant of Christ for that matter. We need more Jesus. Jesus must become greater. That was the message of John's prophetic ministry. That's the theme of our sermon this morning. Jesus must become greater. First, we'll consider that we need to put Jesus first and why. And second, we'll consider that Jesus is first. He's great. He's above all. Jesus must become greater. Putting him first because he is first. So putting Jesus first, Jesus must become greater. That's ultimately John's reply to his disciples. And as you can see here, these words are are filled from the verses 27 and on. These words of John are filled with understanding. He understands the situation. They're also full of humility. He understands his place in the situation. And they're full of love. For Jesus Christ. He is the focus of John's ministry. Part of the message of his words, in fact, is exactly what we are to learn from his words, is exactly that, the understanding and humility and love for his Savior. But we'll get to that. John begins in verse 27 with this general statement of humility. A man can receive only what is given him from heaven. He's saying something to his disciples like, hey, I don't get to choose my place in history. God has appointed me for this task and for no other one. 
I can only do what I am put here to do. I am what I am by the grace of God, is what he's saying. And that's a beautiful place to be. It's a beautiful statement of humility. It's a beautiful understanding to know that you are what you are with the purpose that you have by the grace of God. You cannot expect more than that. But of course, if you kind of read through these words a little bit, you understand there's actually a profound message there in those words. A man can receive only what is given him from above. Well, what does John go on to say has been given to him from above? It's nothing less than the person of Jesus Christ Himself. It's nothing less than the Messiah who is above all, who has come from above. That's what John has received. That's what we have all received. Nothing less than Jesus Christ, the man from heaven, the Son of God Himself. The specific message that John had, as we, as we would look here in John and also in the other Gospels, was twofold. The first part of his message was, repent, for the coming kingdom of God is near. He was urging people toward repentance. That's what his baptism was all about. It was a baptism of repentance. It, it showed the humility and the washing of people in preparation for the coming of Jesus Christ. That's the message that Matthew and Luke give, especially as they describe the ministry of John. He was preaching a sort of moral preparation, a preparation of the heart and the mind and the life. Repenting and and changing of attitudes in preparation for the coming of Jesus Christ. So that was the first part of his message, the repentance. The second part of his message was about the coming of the Messiah. That's what he repeats in verse 28 for the sake of his disciples there. As he says, you yourselves can testify that I said, I am not the Christ, but I'm sent ahead of him. Repent, for Christ is coming soon. Well, it seems that the disciples, in hearing the message, more latched on to that first message about the repentance. That was the one they, they liked to hear. Uh, they weren't so sure about the second part. What did this mean? The Messiah is coming. Or perhaps when they saw Jesus come to John to be baptized, they couldn't accept that this was the one whom John was speaking about. So they're confused. They don't really understand his message. And so to help them understand, John illustrates the point by using the rich metaphor of a wedding. John says, I'm like the best man at a wedding. That's, that's what the friend who attends the wedding in verse 29 is talking about. That's like someone like the best man. The best man's concern is, of course, not to steal the bride for himself. That's not what he's there for at all. He's there for the sake of the groom, for the sake of the bridegroom. His concern is that everything would go well on that day for the bridegroom. And especially, it seems, back in, in these days, the best man had had more of a duty than he does in most of our weddings today. He was very much involved in all the details of the wedding so that the wedding could go off with a hitch, as they say. Seeing the groom standing there coming for the bride, that was the fulfillment of the work of the best man. He would be busy, 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 especially on that day, preparing everything so that 
what the bride and the bridegroom could meet and it would go smoothly and the wedding could happen. And so seeing the bridegroom come for his bride, that was joy for the best man. And John says, that's my joy now. I'm seeing him come. This wedding isn't about me. I'm here to make sure it goes well for him. That's the whole purpose of John's prophetic ministry. Of course, what adds even more texture and depth and beauty to this metaphor that John uses is that he doesn't just pick it out of thin air. No, this this marriage between the bridegroom and the bride, between Jesus Christ and His church, is, is pulled right out of the Old Testament. It's pulled right out of passages like Hosea 2. The bride is the people of God. The bride is God's church, His beloved people. And so John's words fit right into the bigger picture of that larger redemptive uh, plan in the world. The world, and specifically the people of God, have been waiting in expectation for the coming of the groom. The coming of the Messiah. God spoke through His prophets of His relationship with Israel as a husband with a bride. Well, now the time of the bridegroom has come. And so John is really the last in the line of prophets who are preparing the way for His coming. Isaiah chapter 40, make way, make straight paths for Him in the wilderness. John stands in that line of prophets preparing the way for the coming of the groom. John's the end of that time of preparing and longing and waiting. The bride will now see her long-expected groom, and the wedding can commence. That joy, John says, is now mine, because the groom has arrived. Let the wedding begin. But you might ask, wait a second. The wedding feast of Jesus Christ and his people already then? Isn't that to come in in the future? Isn't that only at the end of days when Jesus Christ returns a second time that we can expect this wedding between Jesus and His people, between us and God, this the perfection of our relationship with Him? But this is exactly what the kingdom is all about. This is exactly what the coming of Jesus Christ is all about. It's about that future eternal hope breaking into our time and place now, into the present reality. It's about that eternal relationship with God, that wedding between God and His people being realized even now. Who? Why? Through Jesus Christ. Yes, the fullness of the marriage is to come, but the reality of the marriage is already upon us And the joy is here. Says John, the joy is now mine. It's now complete. My joy is full. Because Jesus Christ has come. And so the time of preparation for John is over. Jesus must become greater. And John must become less. More Jesus, less John. More living in the joy of the now present relationship with God, through Jesus Christ, and less preparing for its coming in the future. It's time for John, along with all the Old Testament prophets and saints who testified to his coming, to fade into the background. 
It's time for the bridegroom to take center stage. And so understanding the situation as clearly as he does, it's not difficult for John to move aside. This was the very purpose for which he has worked. This is the very purpose for which he is born. The very purpose for the long line of prophets that John stands in. And so this isn't about John. This isn't about his following. This isn't about his message being received over against anyone else. For him, it's all about Jesus Christ. So John's words, they function on that large scale of the big picture view of God's redemptive work throughout history. But we see that they also function for us as well. They also function on a personal level for us. Those words, he must become greater and I must become less. Because as we confess in the Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 12, the fact that we are called Christians, that we are in Christ, that we have the name of Christ applied to us, means that we are prophets who confess the name of Jesus. And so we're called upon in our lives to do, in a certain sense, what John was called to do in his. And that means not attracting attention to ourselves, gathering our own following, but it means that our lives and our life and our words all point to Jesus Christ. He's the bridegroom. He's what it's all about. More Jesus and less of us. Our prophetic task in this world is to lift up the person and work of Jesus Christ so that he becomes greater and we become less. For John to demand the spotlight or the attention or the satisfaction of the crowds was totally against his purpose. That's not what he was here for. And so likewise for us, for Christians, for we who confess the name of Christ, our task is to lead others to worship and serve the Lord. You might have a position of, of leadership, or a great impact, or you might have only a small network of friends whom you influence. But for each, the purpose is the same. It's got to be more about Jesus Christ and less about me, less about you. It's not our spotlight or our satisfaction. It belongs to Jesus Christ. John's motto needs to become our motto. He must become greater and I must become less. And if we would truly understand how profound the work of Jesus Christ is, and if we would understand our own place, then this would be all too clear for us. John couldn't do any more than God required of him. He could receive only what was given him from above. We can do no more than God requires of us. But Jesus Christ can do more than we can ask or imagine. He's powerful to save lives. He imparts eternal life. He restores sinners to their Father in heaven. He begets and brings forth children of God. He communicates the love and power of God to our hearts and lives. And He has come to save the world. When Jesus Christ becomes greater, brothers and sisters, that's when good things happen. 
If you want to ask the why question, well, why should it be this way? Well, the answer is quite clear. John makes it very clear for us. Why put Jesus first? Well, because the Lord Jesus is first. He's above all. We have to put Him first because He is first. And that has great impact on our lives and on the world. In the verses 31 through 36, John proceeds to tell us three things. How great Jesus is, how that greatness is expressed, and what that means for us. Well, how great is Jesus? You need look no further than verse 31. The one who comes from above is above all. If you want to quickly summarize comprehensively what greatness is, this is how you can do it. He's above all. What's he above? Oh, everything. He is above all. He's first. He's the greatest. That's Jesus. And John uses this to show the huge difference between Jesus and himself. His disciples are saying, well, your star starts kind of fading and Jesus is kind of rising. John's saying, no, no, no. I'm way down here. Jesus is way up there. He is above all. That's the contrast between earth and heaven in verse 31. It's about John and Jesus. And John isn't castigating himself. He's saying, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm unworthy. I'm so down here. No, he's just repeating the thought of verse 27. A man can receive only what's given him from heaven. John knows his proper place. It's a beautiful place. He's a prophet. But it's still underneath Jesus Christ. It's to show him. He realizes all too clearly what the proper place of Jesus Christ is, that He's above all. He's the Word of God who is God and is with God. He's the light from heaven. He's the promised Messiah. He's the one who has come to bring salvation to a lost and desperate world. That's how great Jesus is. How is that greatness expressed? Well, Jesus' coming is profound. Because he, he brings heaven with him. That sort of captures what John is talking about in the verses that follow. He brings heaven with him. He brings, the, he brings God with him to the earth. He brings the glory and the light of heaven with him to the earth. In fact, he is God himself. He's the one who comes from heaven. The one who comes from heaven is above all, verse 31. Well, heaven is very clearly where God dwells in his glory. In fact, in John 19, verse 11, above simply means God. From above means from God. So Jesus is from God, and he comes to this earth, and he brings the testimony about God. And that's the big and unique thing about Jesus Christ. His testimony is of a completely different character than our testimony, or than John's testimony. John can testify to Jesus. Jesus' disciples can testify to Jesus. But Jesus Christ brings the testimony of heaven. He tells us what heaven's all about and shows it to the world. And so the testimony that Jesus brings is revelation from heaven. It's heaven opening up and exposing itself to the earth. It's a revelation from God. It's communicating to this world the love and salvation of God for the sake of the world. 
That's the significance of speaking the very words of God. Verse 34. The one whom God has sent speaks the words of God. The word of God is God's self-revelation. The word of God, we understand, is the Bible. And the Bible reveals who God is. That's the primary purpose of this book. To reveal to us who God is. To reveal to us the things of heaven. God in His grace and love and holiness and justice. It reveals God, God's person, His work, and it's powerful and effective. It brings light to a dark world. It saves, it transforms. That's what Jesus Christ brings to the world. And that's why, brothers and sisters, it's so important that Jesus becomes greater and we become less. Because only Jesus, only the Word of God, has the power to enlighten, to save, and to transform lives. How does this work out? Well, first, we need to accept the testimony about Jesus as true. The testimony given in His Word. That that Jesus is the light from heaven. That He does speak the very words of God. That He has the Spirit without limit. That's the foundation of faith. Trusting Jesus Christ. And His words have to remain in you. It's no use that Jesus brings the very words of God if, if we don't know the words of God ourselves. They need to become in us. His words must remain in us. That's what He taught His disciples in chapter 15. Let my words remain in you. That's what the Spirit helps us with. And then third, we have to utilize this, this power, this Jesus Christ coming from heaven, bringing the power of God through His Word. We have to bring that Word of God to bear on our lives as we carry out our prophetic ministry in speaking the Word of God. That's what confessing the name of Jesus is about. It's also about bringing to bear the Word of God on this world. For example, when you're speaking to your teenager, and there's lots of things that you could say, often parents don't like the things that their teenagers are doing. There's friction, there's tension, and there's a lot of wisdom that you can get from the world, that you can get from here or there. You can feel hurt or you can feel out of powerless. But bringing the Word of God to bear on this situation is about making Jesus greater and us less. That your teenager's decisions and actions aren't about what they're doing uh, as it relates to you. It's about what they're doing as it relates to Jesus Christ. It's about the need for Jesus to become greater. And it's about not putting your own emotions and opinions on them but it's about bringing the Word of God to bear on their lives. This is wisdom from God's Word, that you should act this way, that you should turn to Him, that you should forsake the idols of this world and that He should become your Lord and Master in your daily walk. 
That's powerful. That's the Word of God. That's the power of Jesus Christ coming into this world and transforming and enlightening. Or when you're relating to others about, say, controversial topics in the church. And again, there's this side and that side. And it become personal. But what we need is for Jesus Christ to become greater and for us to become less. And that in everything we would go to God's Word. What does God's Word say? What does Jesus Christ say? What would Jesus Christ think about this situation? If His church is being torn apart by a minor decision. If we're forgetting that our task in this world is to confess His name. He must become greater. We must become less. And we do that by applying His Word to our lives. Or perhaps you're helping your friend through a difficult time. I remember talking to one young man who, who was going to go away for the weekend with some friends. It was his friend's birthday. He'd had a tough year and they were going to blow off some steam. Rent a limo, go downtown. You know what follows after that. But how is that going to help his friend? Is that really going to help? Is that taking the things of heaven and applying them to his life? Is that pointing him to the glory of Jesus Christ and his power to help? Is that pointing him to the the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on his behalf to cleanse him from sin? Is that pointing him to the power of Jesus Christ in his spirit to lead him on in righteousness? No. We don't help our friends by paying for a limo so they can blow off some steam downtown. We help our friends by bringing the Word of God to bear on their lives so that Jesus Christ becomes greater and that we become less. The same idea is being worked out here. The the idea of Christ's work being bringing the power and purpose of heaven into the world in the words that He gives the Spirit without limit. Prophets in the Old Testament had the Spirit of God and that was for them to prophesy. They spoke in the Spirit only insofar as they carried out their prophetic task. We don't know everything Isaiah said while he was on this earth. But God gave him a purpose, and that is what we have now from him. But Jesus was greater than a prophet. Everything he said and did had eternal significance. Prophets give you a glimpse of heaven when they bring the Word of God to bear on a certain situation. Jesus brings the heart and soul of heaven to the world. Because the Father loves him and has placed everything in his hands. The love of the Father is mediated through Jesus Christ into this world. And he has authorized without limit the Son to carry out the mission of God in this world, which is to save the world. He has given Jesus everything he needs to bring light into this world to save and transform and renew. And to bring us to God. The greatness of Jesus Christ is expressed in His acting powerfully for the good of this world. To bring life and light and hope and healing from heaven to us. He does it through His Word. He does it with the power of the Spirit, which He has without limit. And so at the end of this, John drives us again to the heart of the matter, as he has already 
early in this book so many times. There's two ways to go here. Belief or rejection. Either you accept Jesus' testimony and you want to see more of Him and you want more of heaven and light and life in your life and for your friends and for your family members and for this world or you reject it. And you don't want that. And so you won't bring it to bear on your life. And God's wrath remains on you. This is as pointed as John gets in the book. Whoever rejects the Son will not see life. How can they see life if they reject the one who brings life? They will not see life, for God's wrath remains on them. To not believe is to rebel, and God's wrath remains on you. You're still stuck in this world of sin and darkness. There's no light from heaven. There's no life from above. There's no words of God. There's no spirit without limit. It's just the helpless situation of darkness in this world. But to believe, that is to hook into the power of Jesus Christ. That's to have heaven impact and take over your life so that it dominates you. To believe is to utilize the Word of God to trust it and apply it and have its power transform your life. Jesus is greater. And He's the mediator at the right hand of God. And He mediates God for us. He's the mediator of eternal life. And so when He becomes greater, and we become less, then our joy fills up. And the eternal, blessed, eternal life with God breaks through into our life. And so, beloved of the Lord, He must become greater. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org. Dot org.